What a wonderful reminder of the power of the cross. Appreciate so much the worship ministry, how they serve us week in, week out, pointing us to Christ, the truths of Christ in these songs. Now, if you have your Bibles, please take them and turn with me to the book of Isaiah, Isaiah chapter 28 and 29. Again, I don't think I got around to go greet all our visitors and guests with us this morning, but again, just a warm welcome to all our visitors and guests with us, and uh, from wherever you, from nearby, far away, or around the world, I'm sure uh, there are always people coming through, just so glad to have you here joining us to worship the Lord. Since we'll be looking at two chapters this morning, we'll read the text within the sermon, and so before we look again at this, uh, this text in Isaiah, uh, our series through Isaiah, uh, please uh, pray with me. Father, we ask your spirit to fill us now and be our teacher. Lord, may you cause your word to go forth, that you would cause it to, to do exactly that which you purpose it to do in the lives of those who hear. Lord, we ask you open our ears to hear and give us eyes to see the truths of your word. Lord, help us not only to be hearers of your word, but doers of it as well. Cause us to be humble as we hear your word, that we would hear it not as a word for others, but as a word for ourselves. Lord, speak to us now, we pray, teach us, and continue to shape us more into the image of the kind of people you want us to be. Help us to learn from the lessons of old. Help us to learn from this most relevant text this morning. Help us to learn to trust more in you and trust more in Christ. In Jesus' name, amen. As a parent, as a young parent of young children, and some of you, many of you out there are parents of young children, one of my, I have a kind of a, a concern, it's a sort of a, yeah, it's an ongoing concern, uh, I don't think it's ever going to go away until, you know, probably will never go away. Um, one of my concerns for my children is that they will grow up attending church, participating in church, socializing in church but never actually being in the church, if you know what I mean. They'll grow up learning, singing, and hearing all about Christ, but never actually being in Christ. All the while, though, because of their participation in the church and their familiarity with Christ and the things of God, they become deceived. They become deceived in thinking that they actually are believers in Christ when in reality their hearts are far away from him. This is a danger for my children. This is a danger for all our children who raise up in the church. It's a danger for us as well. It's a danger for God's people today as it was for God's people in the biblical days. For that's exactly what happened to the nation of Israel. As you know, Israel was the chosen nation, God's chosen nation. They were, according to Paul in Romans 9, 4 to 5, adopted as sons, privileged with the glory of God, privileged with the covenants, the giving of the law, the temple, the promises of God, and the patriarchs. And most importantly, from them came the Christ, Jesus, the Messiah, Yet despite Israel's privilege, despite Israel's familiarity with God and the things of God, we ought often see when we read our Old Testament that they would turn away from God. Their hearts would be yearned for the things of the world, would yearn for the idols and, and not of God. They would trust in the nations, trust in themselves, trust in everything else, their wealth and the resources instead of God. That's what happened in the days of Isaiah and the people of God. Outwardly, we've already seen earlier in Isaiah how they were, were involved in hypocritical worship. Outwardly, they worshiped God. They did all the right things, at least, at least from the surface level. But in reality, Israel was not trusting God with their lives. Much like people today, maybe somebody here in this church who say that, yes, I'm a Christian. You may participate, attend in, the, in, this, in, in this church, But in your daily lives, when you walk out these doors, until you come back in these doors, your life reflects that your heart is far away from God. 
that you don't know God, that you don't trust him. The Bible teaches that a genuine faith in God ought to be more than just a Sunday in church service kind of faith. Genuine faith in God ought to be an everyday, everywhere faith in God. Our faith in God ought to manifest in what we do throughout the week, in what we do this afternoon, in what we do when we go to school or when we go to work, in what we do when we face various trials, in what we affects, it ought to manifest in how we interact with one another, other people in our lives throughout the week. It ought to manifest in how we handle trials and circumstances in our lives. Today's passage will teach us about a faith that trusts in God every day, everywhere in our lives. But as this, we are going through Isaiah, chapters 28 through 33 are a passage that is often called the, the six woes. It's woes that God pronounces upon wayward Israel. Now, you know, you may, you know, I think our, most of us understand the English word whoa. You know, it doesn't mean whoa, stop. But whoa is me kind of feel. You know, whoa is me. It's that interjection, that exclamation that we make when we kind of are anticipating difficulties and trials. It is that word that expresses sorrow, dismay, discomfort, at impending sorrow, grief, or affliction. It is a, in the Hebrew, actually, it's a word that sounds like what it means. It's, whoa, it's kind of how you groan, whoa. Well, something like that. When you feel troubles or the weight of troubles upon you. In this past, in, this, in these uh, chapters, we see six woes. And in our... And why is Israel, why does God pronounce a woe upon Israel? For various reasons, but they set up the historical context. We're reminded that Israel was under the threats of the Assyrian Empire. The Assyrian Empire was actually sent by God to discipline the northern kingdom as well as the southern kingdom. And God wanted them to, through this discipline, to not trust in themselves, not trust in the nations, but to trust in him in light of the discipline. But Israel, as we, kind of, as we look through, as we kind of go through, gone through Isaiah, we've learned that they haven't. They don't. And so these two chapters pronounce a woe. Like, trouble is coming. Woe is coming to you because you are not trusting in your God. And if you and I are believers in God, we say we have faith in God, faith in Jesus Christ, but throughout the week, we are not trusting in him in practice each week, every day or throughout our lives, then woe upon you too, for trouble is coming. Maybe trouble is already here. I will hope that as we look at this text, it will cause us who are who are God's people. I think all of us are here. We, we would, the majority of us here would say that we believe in Jesus Christ. We trust in Christ. But this text would cause you and me to evaluate our lives to see whether we consistently trust in him throughout our weeks. Are our hearts, do our hearts draw near to God throughout the week? Or do our hearts wander away? Are we far away from God? not trusting in him, nor trusting in his word that he gives us. As I outlined for us, we have three-point outline this morning. Three woes. We have the first of the six woes, first three of the six woes in these two chapters. Three woes upon Israel that cause us to examine our trust in the Lord. Israel, as we will see, gave much lip service to God. But in the face of adversity of the Assyrian Empire, they turned away from trusting their God. And so God pronounces these woes. And the first woe we find in chapter 28. And so we spend quite a bit of time here in chapter 28. It's a lengthy chapter. We see God pronounces a woe to the leaders of Israel. Uh, there's woe coming upon the nation because, there is, because of the failure of the leadership. You know, when you think about nations that fail, nations that are doing poorly, it's not really the people's fault. It's always inevitably a leadership problem, a leadership failure. The leaders have failed 
to lead their people. And God pronounces woe to the leaders of Israel. Now, at this time, you know that Israel is divided into two kingdoms, the northern kingdom uh, and the southern kingdom. The northern kingdom called Ephraim often, and the southern kingdom often called Judah after the, the two respective larger, largest tribes. And so God begins with a, a condemnation, a woe upon the leaders of Ephraim in verses 1 to 13. We read the first six verses. Woe to the proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim and to the fading flower of its glorious beauty which is at the head of the fertile valley of those who are overcome with wine. Behold, the Lord has a strong and mighty agent. As a storm of hail, a tempest of destruction, like a storm of mighty overflowing waters, he has cast it down to the earth with his hand. The proud crown of the drunkards of Ephraim is trodden underfoot. And the fading flower of its glorious beauty, which is at the head of the fertile valley, will be like the first ripe fig prior to summer, which one sees, and as soon as it is in hand, he swallows it. In that day, the Lord of hosts will become a beautiful crown and a glorious diadem to the remnant of his people, a spirit of justice for him who sits in judgment, a strength to those who repel the onslaught at the gate. We see this word crown repeated several times in this passage, and that word crown is a word that symbolically refers to the leaders of the nation, just as the leaders where the king would wear a crown. So the crown refers to the leaders, particularly here of the northern kingdom. And when these, these, uh, this crown or these leaders are described, two words are most often described of them, and here it's that they are proud. It is a proud crown that they are. They are full of pride. And secondly, these leaders are drunkards. First of all, the nation at this time was a glorious nation. It's described as a, a, had much glorious beauty. It was a successful nation. It was a wealthy nation. And, of course, when a nations uh, are successful, just like uh, every good politician, when your nation's going well, who do you give glory to? Yourself. Right, exactly. I did it. We did it. Vote for me next election because we did it. But for the leaders of Israel... When things are going well, who are they to give glory to? To God. But the leaders of Israel did not give glory to God. They were prideful. They were boastful. They, were, they, they, they looked upon their own glorious beauty. They were full of themselves. They were arrogant. This would be manifested, of course, by the fact that they won't depend upon God. They don't listen to God. They don't give glory to God. They don't heed God. There was no, there was a, no recognition that God was the source of their blessings. When we know that all our blessings, even as we sung this morning, all our blessings, praise God, from whom all blessings flow. And so because of the failure of the leaders of Ephraim uh, to recognize God, because they were full of pride, because they were drunkards, and that could be literal drunkenness, the success. Sometimes when you have so much success, you just get caught up in just enjoying your, your, what you have. And there was, a full of, there was a very fertile valley. So maybe they're all caught up in drunkenness. And in drunkenness, when you're, depend, when you're controlled by wine, you're not controlled by the Spirit. You're not controlled by God. And so that's a, just a general principle. Uh, and so God would pronounce that a judgment would come. Verse 2 talks about he's going to bring a strong and mighty agent. And that agent is Assyria, the Syrian Empire at this time. God would bring Assyria to, take, uh, to conquer Ephraim. This is actually one of the many prophecies of the destruction of the northern kingdom and, to take, and it's, and it's uh, being taken into captivity. However, the leadership problem, the, the void of leadership within the northern kingdom would not last forever. There is hope for the northern kingdom, hope for the, even though Assyria would conquer them. For verse 5 to 6 go, takes us all the way to the future in that day, the eschatological day of the Lord that we've uh, looked at many times. In that day, the Messiah, the Lord of hosts, he will be a beautiful crown, not a proud crown. He'll be a beautiful crown. He will be in contrast to the leaders of Ephraim, a source of, of justice and strength. You know, the leaders of Ephraim use their, and just like sadly many le- political leaders do, not all, of course, but many will use their position of power for their, for their own good for to line their own pockets, to take bribes so that to, before they serve justice, but in the king, in the, when the Messiah comes, he will be known for his justice. What's more, he will be known for his strength. The leaders of Ephraim were so full of wine, so drunk, that they were unable, un- 
could not think clearly to defend the nation when Assyria came. They became more overconfident. But then that day, the Messiah will be a source of strength. He will, do, he will withstand and fight off all of Israel's enemies. The woe upon these leaders of Ephraim continues. We, don't, we see not only that it's a woe upon the political leaders, but it's a woe on spiritual leaders in verses 7 to 13. And these also reel with wine and stagger from strong drink. The priest and the prophet reel with strong drink. They are confused by wine. They stagger from strong drink. They reel while having visions. They totter when rendering judgment. For all the tables are full of filthy vomit without a single clean place. Isaiah then kind of quotes what these priests and these prophets were saying in response to God's word. To whom would he teach knowledge? That is God. Whom would God teach knowledge? To whom should he interpret the message? Those just weaned from milk? Those just taken from the breast? For he says... Order on order, order on order, line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there. They're mocking God. Verse 11, indeed, he will speak to this people through stammering lips and a foreign tongue. He who said to them, here is rest, give rest to the weary, and here is repose, but they will not listen. So the word of the Lord to them will be order on order, order on order, Line on line, line on line, a little here, a little there, that they may go and stumble backward, be broken, snared, and taken captive. What's shocking here as we look upon this woe is that it's not just political leaders. You know, it's easy to always, you know, blame the political leaders for all our troubles. You know, when there are uh, you know, there must be some good political leaders out there, okay? There must be. But here we find that it's the religious leaders, too. It's the pastors that are drunk. Pastor Henry's drunk. He's confused. He doesn't know what he's doing. These priests and prophets who should have been giving the word, who should have been serving the people, pointing them to God were caught up in their own drunkenness. And what's more, they were so full of pride that according to verse 9 and 10, they, they basically say, to, in response to Isaiah's vision from God, like, why does God need to say that to us? Who does he think he's talking to? I'm a priest. I'm a prophet. I know knowledge. I know the law. I, already, I don't need interpretation. I'm not a spiritual baby. I'm mature. I don't need the word of God. I don't need this vision. I know we're supposed to trust the Lord. What do you say? You know, why do we need this? We don't need that. Give us something more, you know, more difficult, more challenging. And then they, verse 10, is, verse 10, 13, you know, very interesting. Like, what does that mean? But uh, most commentators, most of us believe that this is an order, order on order, line on line, etc. Is it basically a mockery in a, in a very ch- childlike kind of sing-song kind of make. They're mocking like uh, God's word as if it's gibberish. As if it's like, you know, it's just like a, it's like nursery rhymes. Why are you speaking to us in nursery rhymes? We don't need nursery rhymes. We don't need ABCs, one, two, threes. We need some meat. Give us some solid stuff. They mock it, and even that phrase, a little here, a little there, is, is actually a state, is a phrase that basically how people would teach children a little bit at a time. And that's kind of how we teach children, a little bit at a time. But they were mocking God's words, like, it's too elementary for us. And because they mocked it, God says to them, indeed, he will judge them. He will speak to them, in fact, through a foreign tongue. They reject this clear word of God from Isaiah then he would bring it again to them through Assyria, through the discipline of Assyria. The foreigners, the Assyrians who would come, and then later even the Babylonians who would come and break them and take them captive. And then they would learn in the most fundamental way, order on order, order on order, line on line, a little who lived there. Basically, they would, God would teach them in the most elementary way. And you know, one of the most elementary ways, and I just, I just kind of came to me, one of the most elementary ways that you teach a child is that when you do wrong, there's a penalty. 
And God brings the discipline of the Syrian Empire to discipline them, to show them that they're doing wrong. That this discipline is a, is a kind of just a simple way to just, okay, you know, not that, but you know, I told you not to do that. A discipline of them so that they would then respond in recognizing that God is disciplining us for our sin. This is, these verse, first 13 verses really are God's condemnation of the nation Ephraim, predicting of their fall. This coming judgment upon Ephraim was to serve as a warning to the leaders, not just of Ephraim, but what's more, most importantly, the leaders of Judah, the southern kingdom. That's which he focuses on in the rest of the chapter. The, the, and so we see, verse 14 and 29, really a woe to the leaders of Judah. Verse 14, 15, Therefore, hear the word of the Lord, O scoffers, who rule this people who are in Jerusalem. Okay, that's why we know there's a change here to Judah, because it's talking about Jerusalem, the capital of Judah, the rulers of, of Judah. Because you have said, we have made a covenant with death, and with Sheol we have made a pact. The overwhelming scourge will not reach us when it passes by, for we have made falsehood our refuge, and we have concealed ourselves with deception. Pride was not limited only to the leaders of Ephraim. Pride is also manifest in the rulers of Judah. They were proud of themselves. They, were, they boasted here of their covenants that they had made, their deceptive schemes that they, had, uh, that they had made. They believed that their covenant with death and Sheol would basically deliver them. So when the scourge of Assyria would come, then it would not reach them. It would pass by them. Likely, this was a reference, as we see from the next two chapters, that this is a confidence in their treaty and their covenant or their pact with the nation of Egypt, who they thought would come to help them when Assyria came. The leaders of Judah prided themselves on their falsehood, on their deception, on their treaties, on their skillful, skillful political bargainings and, 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 and maneuvers. And it's not, not necessarily wrong to have treaties. I mean, uh, nations have treaties all the time. But God wants his people, whenever, whenever in the face of any trial or danger or affliction, or, God wants them to put their trust first and foremost in him, right? God wants you to, before you do anything about that trial in your life, God wants you to trust in him, to, put, to pray to him, ask him to, God, give me wisdom. I don't know what to do. He wants you to cry out to him. He wants you to do that first and foremost. God has always wanted his people to trust in him. And that's when we come to verse 16. Verse 16, as we'll see, read here, is a a key Old Testament passage. It'll be quite familiar to many of you. You've probably read it somewhere in your New Testament before. You probably didn't even know it was an Old Testament passage, but here it is quoted, alluded to in at least four other New Testament passages, Romans 9.33, Romans 10.11, 1 Peter 2.6, and Ephesians 2.20. Those are just the more the, the clear references. But we read in verse 16 what God says to this nation, to these pride, le- proud leaders of, of Jerusalem and Judah. Therefore, thus says the Lord God, Behold, I am laying in Zion a stone, a tested stone, a costly cornerstone for the foundation, firmly placed. He who believes in it will not be disturbed. You and I know that this passage is speaking of the Messiah. The stone that God lays in Zion is the the chief cornerstone, the one that is firmly placed, the one that if you believe in it, you will not be ashamed or disturbed. This is none other than Christ. Paul is, Isaiah has already described uh, this stone once before in Isaiah eight fourteen to 15, that he is a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. The New Testament just affirms all what we find here, that the one who believes or trusts in him will not be disappointed or ashamed. God, has, God will provide a Messiah, a Christ, a Savior, a Lord, our Lord, whom, it, whom he desires for us to put our faith and trust in him so that you will not be disappointed or shamed. When facing life's storms, tempests, and overflowing waters, God wants you to trust and step upon the stone that he has laid. 
This stone is the one that God has laid. So you can be sure that God lays only perfect stones. This stone is a tested stone. It is proven stone. It is a costly, precious stone. It, it costs much for this stone to be laid. It is a foundational cornerstone. It is upon which all our faith in life is worthy to be built upon. It is a firmly placed stone that when you step upon it, you can be sure that it will always uphold. And he who believes in this stone will not be disturbed or disappointed. The one who believes in Jesus Christ, the Messiah, will never find him to be lacking. You will never find him to, be, to, be, to, never, to, be, to fall short of what you need. This stone alone will uphold you throughout life's trials and circumstances. And this is the stone that God wants Israel to put their trust in in the face of the oncoming Assyria, in the face of, for northern kingdom, and even for the southern kingdom, of inevitable captivity. It's inevitable bad news, really. But God wants us to trust in him. He wants us to trust in this stone. We can trust, and we can apply that to all sorts of areas in our lives, to put your trust in Jesus Christ. Now, in contrast, what God, in contrast to what God's desire for us to put our, put, for Israel to put their trust in the stone, the Messiah, we find out in verse 17, 22, that if they continue to follow Jerusalem's leaders, they continue to follow the path of pride and path of arrogance, it would be a path of destruction. God promises destruction. Now, he says in verse 17, 22, I will make justice the measuring line and righteousness the level. Then hail will sweep away the refuge of lies, and the waters will overflow the secret place. Your covenant with death will be canceled, and your pact with Sheol will not stand. When the overwhelming scourge passes through, then you become its trampling place. As often as it passes through, it will seize you. For morning after morning, it will pass through any time during the day or night, and it will be a sheer terror to understand what it means. The bed is too short on which to stretch out, and the blanket is too small to wrap oneself in. For the Lord will rise up as at Mount Perizim. He will be stirred up as in the valley of Gibeon to do his task, his unusual task, to work his work, his extraordinary work. And now do not, and now do not carry on as scoffers, or your fetters will be made stronger. For I have heard from the Lord God of hosts of decisive destruction on all the earth. Here we just simply see a picture, a simply reversal, all that, uh, all that the Jerusalem's leaders or Judah's leaders found confidence in, God would overturn their covenants, their deceitful schemes, their pacts. God would just show them that, that, it, that they think the scourge is going to overflow them. No, the scourge is going to come right through you, and it's going to keep coming, and it's going to come day after day. You just don't know when, and it will come whenever it wants and just take you away. And then you just use that beautiful picture. It's, it's going to be like you're going to find yourself in a bed that's just too short and you don't have enough covers. You find that your leaders fall short. God's going to judge. He's going to do an, an unusual task. He's going to do extraordinary work of bringing judgment upon the nation through Assyria. So that's why don't carry on. Don't continue as scoffers. Don't because destruction is coming. And so in verse 23 to 29, God then calls Judah to heed his word. He calls them to listen to him. Don't be proud, so proud. Don't be so arrogant like your leaders and follow your own ways. Follow God's ways. Verse 23 and 29 to 29. Give ear and hear my voice. Listen and hear my words. God calls them to listen to him. And then verse 24 to 29, we see this illustration from a farmer, from a farming life. Does the farmer plow continually to plant seed? Does he continually turn and harrow the ground? These are rhetorical questions, expecting a no answer. Does he not level its surface and sow dill and scatter cumin and plant wheat in rows, barley in its place and rye within its area? For his God, that is the farmer's God, instructs and teaches him properly. For dill is not threshed with a threshing sledge nor is the cartwheel driven over cumin. But dill is beaten out with a rod and cumin with a club. Grain for bread is crushed 
Indeed, he does not continue to thresh it forever because the wheel of his cart and his horses eventually damage it. He does not thresh it longer. This also comes from the Lord of hosts, who has made his counsel wonderful and his wisdom great. Now, this is obviously some kind of illustration, if you will, like a parable. Jesus told many stories from, modern, uh, from present-day life to illustrate a point. And there's an illustration here God, that God uses, a lesson for the people of Israel, using the farmer. And this farmer is an illustration of how God is using the Syrians as a discipline, as a judgment upon his chosen nation, Israel. It has been pointed out that there are oftentimes three lessons that we can learn here, very practical lessons, if you will, from this illustration of the farmer of God's judgment, God's discipline. In verse 24, like the farmer who plows the ground to plant seed. The farmer doesn't just plow all the time. He doesn't plow continually. He does it for a purpose. He does it just for a while. And so we learn then, we encourage that God's discipline of your life, God's discipline of Israel, is not going to go on continually. It's, they're not going to be con- constantly taken over by Assyria, even though they're taken into captivity. Even later on, Judah's going to be taken into captivity. It's not going to be continually taking place. God will remember them. That discipline will have a short, a definite time period. And we can apply that to our lives. If God is disciplining you, God's bringing you through trials to teach you a lesson, to, bring, to give you wisdom, you can trust that it will not continue inevitably. It will, there will be a, only a there will be a definite time to it. Verse 25, like the farmer who sows and plants with different methods. Different plants require different sowing methods. God will employ discipline appropriate to the, for the lessons that he wants us to learn. Each of us are a little different. Each of us are learning different ways. Each of us have different kind of buttons that, we, or that are pushed, different lessons that God wants us to learn. And he will use different circumstances to teach us the, the appropriate lesson. Thirdly, verse 27, 28, like the farmer who threshes with differing weights of pressure, God will not employ a discipline that is too great for you to bear. All this, these three lessons about from the farmer is God's word. And he wants them to heed, he wants the Judah Israel to heed his word. For it is wonderful counsel. It is great wisdom. Only the proud reject his word. God wants his people to heed his word. For Israel, they were too proud. The leaders of Israel were so proud that they were, that woe was coming upon them. And we could apply it to our day and principalize it. We would say, woe upon the one who says that he has faith in God, but does not heed the word of God. You are too proud to heed the word of God. You think you don't need it. That's too simple. It's too, maybe it's irrelevant for your life. But God says, woe, there's woe, there's trouble coming if you do not heed the word of God. We then move on to the second woe. And the second woe we find in, verse, in chapter 29, verse 1 to 14, and that is God pronounces a woe to the worshipers in Jerusalem. God is pronouncing woe to those who are basically going to church, going to the temple. There's a judgment that's coming, a judgment upon Jerusalem, the worshipers there, in verse 1 to 8. Woe, O Ariel. Ariel is, a, is, a, just a, is a, a name for Jerusalem. It can mean uh, the Lion of God or it can mean the Altar Hearth of God. And that's probably the better, I think it's the better uh, uh, meaning here. O Ariel, Ariel, the city where David once camped. Add year to year. Observe your feasts on schedule. So God's encouraging them to keep worshiping like you do. You guys observing the yearly, all the, all the different, your worship year after year. You're, you're observing all the feasts like your schedule. So they're clearly, they're practicing some worship. Verse 2, I will bring distress to Ariel, and she will be a city of lamenting and mourning. She will be like an Ariel to me, an altar hearth, be a place where sacrifices are made. I will camp against you, encircling you, and I will set siege works against you, and I will raise up battle towers against you. Then you will be brought low from the earth you will speak, and from the dust where you are prostrate, your words will come. Your voice will also be like that of a spear from the ground. Your speech will whisper from the dust. Quite shockingly, God pronounces a woe upon those worshipers in Jerusalem. He says, I'm going to bring judgment upon you. I'm going to actually bring, uh, he's going to bring Assyria to lay siege. There's going to be a lamenting mourning. He's going to circle the whole city of Jerusalem 
with the Assyrians. And we know this in Isaiah 36, 37, King Sennacherib of Assyria would lay siege to Jerusalem after actually conquering all the fortified cities of Judah and Jerusalem is left and he lays siege. But God would spare Jerusalem as we see in verse five to eight. But the multitude of your enemies will become like fine dust and the multitude of the ruthless ones like the chaff which blows away and it will happen instantly, suddenly. From the Lord of hosts, you'll be punished with thunder and earthquake and loud noise, with whirlwind and tempest and the flame of a consuming fire. And the multitude of all the nations who wage war against Ariel, even all who wage war against her and her stronghold, who distress her, will be like a dream, a vision of the night. It will be as when a hungry man dreams, and behold, he is eating. When he awakens, his hunger is not satisfied. As when a thirsty man dreams, and behold, he is drinking. But when he awakens, behold, he is faint, and his thirst is not quenched. Thus the multitude of all the nations will be who wage war against Mount Zion. Uh, we mentioned many times that God miraculously delivers Israel. And the, this deliverance of Jerusalem here that, is, that will take place in the near future would also prefigure the deliverance of, Judah, of Jerusalem in the far future day of the Lord. In that far future, the many nations who wage war against Jerusalem will be unable to harm her. They'll only be able to dream about it. But when they wake up, they'll have nothing. Because why? The Messiah will be there to protect them. And in this case, in the near future, God will protect them. We may wonder why. Why does God bring judgment upon his worshipers? Why is he bringing this woe upon them? Why? When we learn in verse 9 to 14, the problem with Jerusalem. Here's the problem. Verse 9, we read 9 to 12. Be delayed and wait. Blind yourselves and be blind. They become drunk, but not with wine. They stagger, but not with strong drink. For the Lord has poured over you a spirit of deep sleep. He has shut your eyes, the prophets, and he has covered your heads, the seers. The entire vision will be to you like the words of a sealed book, which when they give it to you, one who is literate, saying, please read this, he will say, I cannot, for it is sealed. And the book will be given to the one who is illiterate, saying, please read this. And he will say, I, I cannot read. These four verses simply say that describes Israel. The problem with Jerusalem is that they're spiritually blind. They're spiritually blind. There's a blindness that they have caused themselves because of their sin, their choice to go their own way. They deny God, their dependence upon God. But also the spiritual blindness is also, at the same time, because of God. God has caused a deep sleep to fall upon them. And as a result, they'll be unable and unwilling to accept Isaiah's vision. Even when handed it to them, they're going to say, well, I can't read it. Well, I can't open it. Not only is there a spiritual blindness, but this spiritual blindness would affect their worship. They would be so spiritually blind that they go through all the motions of worship, but look what happens. Verse 13 and 14. Then the Lord said, because this people draw near with, draw near with their words and honor me with their lip service, but they remove their hearts far from me. And their reverence for me consists of tradition learned by rote. Therefore, behold, I will once again deal marvelously with this people, wondrously marvelously. And the wisdom of their wise men will perish, and the discernment of the discerning man will be concealed. Verse 13 is another key verse, and it should be very familiar to you if you've read your New Testament. For we know that this is a word that Jesus himself would use. He would use it to condemn the hypocrisy of the Pharisees and scribes. Pharisees and scribes who knew their Bible, who were very religious, who practiced, uh, who strove for morality. But Israel... And Jesus condemned them because they were far from God. Their hearts were far from God. They did all, everything outwardly correct, but inwardly, they were dead. That's what was happening for Israel. They, were, they all professed to know God. They all professed to worship God. They all give lipsters. They say, I believed in Jesus Christ who died on the cross for my sins. They would say all the right things. They probably went to temple regularly. They went to temple regularly. They offered the, the requisites, the sacrifices that God wanted them. They went to, the, the men made sure that they went to the Jerusalem three times a year on the required uh, the national feasts. But their hearts were far from God. And so God would judge them and remove all their wisdom. In the Babylonian captivity, some 130 years later, God would remove 
all wisdom from the land, all the skilled leaders, all the priests, all the prophets, all the scribes, all the religious leaders, the temple servants, they would be all taken into captivity along with much of the the rest of the nation. Only the poor, the unskilled, very the least, the 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 lowest of society were left in the land. There will be no more wisdom in the land because the people of God had rejected the wisdom of God. They had they they worshipped God outwardly, but their hearts were far away. Woe, woe upon the one who says that he has faith in God, but does not draw near to God. And I think we should all take this to heart. I particularly take this to heart. Uh, Here we are worshiping God today, but in the rest of our week, maybe the rest of your your day, is God on your heart and mind? Are you trusting in him for what you're going to do this afternoon? Are you trusting in him as you're taking care of your little children? Are you trusting in him as you're spending time with your family, your, your wife, your, your husband? Are you trusting him as you go to school and as you go to work this week? Are you trusting in him and as, as you go about you, the various endeavors that you do? God wants you to trust him for all these things. God wants you to draw near to him. If your heart is far away from him, woe upon you. Trouble was coming. There's a last and final woe that we find here in the latter half of part, chapter 29, and that is woe to those who reject God. Woe to those who reject God. And the woe, the condemnation is primarily in verse 15 to 16. Woe to those who deeply hide their plans from the Lord and whose deeds are done in dark place. And they say, who sees us or who knows us? You turn things around. Shall the potter be considered as equal with the clay? That what is made would say to its maker, he did not make me? Or what is formed, say to him who formed it, he has no understanding? Verse 15 tells us that the Israelites had rejected God's ways. They'd follow their own ways. They, they, they didn't choose to follow God's plans. They came up with their own plans. They were so blinded that they actually thought that they, God wouldn't even see what they were doing. Even though God wanted them to trust in him. You just remember, go back to Isaiah 7. God wanted Ahab to trust, to trust Ahaz to trust in God, but he doesn't. And he turns and he trusts in Assyria. That's the whole, that's the beginning of which the, the led Lord to use then say, because you trust in Assyria, I'm going to use Assyria to discipline you. If only Ahaz had put his trust in God in the first place. A lot of times that's how we are, aren't we? We put our trust in everything else but God first. <laughs> and oftentimes, God will allow us to experience the discipline that, that results as a result of that. And then we learn the lesson, and we come back to God, and we acknowledge that, that we had rejected him. But God wants us to turn to him. He doesn't want us to be people who, like, like the Israelites, reject his help, to reject him as creator, that's what the Israelites were doing. They were, they were denying him as the creator. He did not make me. You know, when we deny God as creator, we really are simply saying that we don't need to listen to God. But if he is our creator, then we need to listen to him. We need to heed him because he knows us better than we ourselves. They were saying that God was not relevant for them, that God has no understanding. These, basically, these people were thought they knew better than God. They thought they knew better than God. What? God knows better than all of us combined. And here they are rejecting his word, rejecting his counsel. They're being fools. And the lesson is woe. Woe upon the one who says he has faith in God but rejects God's help. We reject God's help. Rather, we reject it from God himself. We reject and trusting him. We reject God's word. We reject God's church. You know, sometimes when we... When we I, I have just, you know been so blessed by the church. In my need, God has just brought so many of you guys alongside. Uh, and, and throughout, not just more recently, but throughout my life. A lot of times, when, but you know how it is? When you go through trials, the temptation is to run away from church. It's so difficult. Because there's, and I understand, you know, there's, there's shame throughout, in our trials, you know, uh, for, for 
to talk about it sometimes, things we're going through, wrestling. Maybe some people don't even listen. They're not that helpful. It's true. There are, there are people who cannot be helpful. You know, they just kind of say, oh, yeah, yeah, discount what you're feeling. But we need God's people. God provides his people, his church, his, his word, his spirit as means of us to help, him, to help us through in the midst of trials. We learn the rest of the, the chapters is basically God saying, though you reject him, God and his faithful will not reject his people. He will not reject Israel. Verse 17, 20, let's read it. Is it not yet just a little while before, Le- while before Lebanon will be turned into a fertile field? And the fertile field will be considered as a forest. Lebanon is basically kind of reference to the northern kingdom. Basically, it's just going to, it's going to be fertile again. It's going to be fertile again. It's going to grow. Uh, it's going to be, everything's going to be brought new. On that day, the deaf will hear words of a book, and out of their gloom and darkness, the eyes of the blind will see. The afflicted also will increase their gladness in the Lord. The needy of mankind will rejoice in the Holy One of Israel. For the ruthless will come to an end, and the scorner will be finished. Indeed, all who are intent on doing evil will be cut off, who cause a person to be indicted by a word and ensnare him who adjudicates at the gate, and defraud the one on the right with meaningless arguments. Therefore, Thus says the Lord who redeemed Abraham concerning the house of Jacob. Jacob shall not now be ashamed, nor shall his face now turn pale. But when he sees his children, the work of my hands in his midst, they will sanctify my name. Indeed, they will sanctify the Holy One of Jacob and will stand in awe of the God of Israel. Those who err in mind will know the truth. and Those who criticize will accept instruction. Verse 17, 24, basically just describe what God's going to do in the future for Israel. He's going to turn everything back around. Their sin led to their discipline, led to their captivity. God's really began with their blindness, but God's going to open their eyes. God's going to give them ears to hear. God's going to give gladness to the afflicted. God's going to show the needy that what they really need is Jesus Christ, the Holy One of Israel. And though Israel is unfaithful, we're going to learn that God's faithful to them. He's going to bring them back to the land. He's going to restore them. He's going to keep his promises to Abraham, Isaac, and Jacob. And they're all going to stand in awe of God. And instead of their false hypocritical worship, they're all going to worship him in truth. They're going to sanctify him. And they're going to know the truth. They're going to know the truth. And they're going to accept God's word. One day. That's going to happen in the future with national Israel. But the lesson for us is that we need to not reject God as those who have faith in God. In the New Testament, we, in Romans 9 through 11, in fact, God there through the Apostle Paul shows that there's a future for Israel, that God is going to actually fulfill his promises to national Israel. There's a partial hardening, but one day he's going to bring Israel back to himself. But Israel had basically gone it all wrong. And in Romans 9, 30 to 33, though they, had every, they, though they had the law, they had the word, Romans 9, 30 to 33, we read, this is what they had missed. Because God has brought, basically at that time, it was bringing salvation to Gentiles. What shall, Romans 9, 30 to 33, what shall we say then? That Gentiles who did not pursue righteousness attain righteousness, even the righteousness which is by faith. But Israel, pursuing a law of righteousness, did not arrive at that law. Why? Because they did not pursue it by faith. But as though it were by works, they stumbled over the stumbling stone. Just as it is written, Behold, I lay in Zion a stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. And he who believes in him will not be disappointed. The reason why Gentiles were coming to salvation and Jews were not, Israel was not, because Israel, though they had the law real clearly, though they knew that, uh, they, that God had instructions for them, they pursued it as if that was the means of salvation. They pursued morality. They pursued the, uh, the, the ceremonial laws, the sacrificial laws, as if that was what was going to save them. Rather than understanding that salvation, just as it was for Abraham and Isaac and Jacob, was always by faith. And God wants his people to, res- res- to pursue righteousness by faith. Always by faith. And just as he desires for you and me today to pursue salvation, righteousness by faith in Jesus Christ. And the morality and the obedience to the laws flow out of that faith. The people of Israel had stumbled over the stumbling stone. God wanted them to believe in him, the stone, 
the chief cornerstone. But they did not. They did everything else but that. And that is a warning for you and me today. As those of us who say that we have faith in God. God doesn't want us to say we have faith in God. God wants us to have faith in God. He wants us to put our trust in God. He wants us to people who, when we go through trials, when there are difficulties and circumstances and afflictions, that we will heed the word of God, that we will draw near to God, we will acknowledge to him our need for God, and not just at the moment of salvation, but throughout every day of our lives, throughout every day this week. Let us believe and put our trust in God, and particularly, especially in the very stone, Jesus Christ, that he has laid. May we teach this to our children, parents. I know we're, initially we teach them outward, you know, outward things. We teach them to pray. They don't know what they're saying. <laughs> we teach them to go to church, to sing songs. They don't know what they're singing yet. We must teach them to put their trust, to put their trust in him, the stone, the chief cornerstone. Make sure that's what we show them. Don't show them how to outwardly live the Christian life. Show them Christ in you. Show them how much you need and believe in Christ. Let's pray. Father in heaven, thank you, Lord, for your word. And we pray that you would help us to be a people who constantly and continually live by faith, putting our trust in the very one whom you have laid in Zion, the stone which is the precious cornerstone, a stone that is tested, that is firm, a firm foundation, one that will not fail, one that in whom we believe we will never be disappointed, never be ashamed, never be disturbed. Lord, we pray that we would live such a, that we would live out this faith daily, our faith in Christ. Guard us, Father, from being a people who just give lip service to Christ, but don't show it in our lives. These things we pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Amen.